Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. We are this morning starting a new series on the book of Zephaniah. Um, if you guys were to, if I were to pull you guys and ask everyone to tell me your favorite thing about the book of Zephaniah, what would I get back? Probably not a whole lot. Um, Zephaniah is one of those obscure prophetical books that just doesn't make it into the, uh, the common vernacular very often. Um, but God has given it to us, and we get the privilege of studying it. Zephaniah is called a minor prophet. The minor prophets were um, given to us, um, and they're called minor, not because they're less important, but because they're small, they're shorter. Zephaniah, in this case, is only three chapters long. Zephaniah prophesied to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of um, the divided kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom had already been sacked by the Assyrians and carted off, and the southern kingdom was all that was left. It was known as Judah, and um, the uh, and Zephaniah is prophesying to them in this in-between time after the northern kingdom has been sacked. Um, Zephaniah reveals to us a lot of things that are hard to hear. A lot of things about God's judgment, a lot about God's wrath, a lot about God's hatred towards sin. We're going to look at it, and we're going to take it seriously, and we're going to um, hopefully be shaped by it. But just as is the case with all view of all, all uh, pictures of God's wrath in the Bible, it isn't until we understand the depth, the severeness of God's wrath that we can fully understand the depths of his mercy. So with that said, let us begin by looking at Zephaniah and listen to how he tells us about the end of the world. Zephaniah chapter 1, we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 3. You can read on the screen, so if you want to open up your Bibles in the pew in front of you, feel free to do that as I'll be jumping around the passage today, and if you want to see where I'm getting what I'm saying, that would be a good practice for you to do. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Molech. 
Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those He has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's son and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, I cry, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district, all your merchants will be wiped out, all who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. The day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them. On the day of the Lord's wrath and the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Gather together. Gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect. And that day passes like windblown chaff. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you who humble, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Um, even when it's hard to hear, Lord. We pray, Lord, that... Um, we would see how you view our sin this morning and that we would appropriately respond. May it show us even more clearly how deep your mercy is. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And Moises, I don't know if it's just me, but I'm hearing a lot of feedback, a lot of ringing. I'm not sure if you can turn down my mic a little bit or turn down the, what do you call it? I forget. I don't really know what I'm talking about. All right. Um, so, one of my favorite books, a book that I'm curious how many of you have read, is a book by Douglas Adams called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Who's read that book? Anyone? Just see if anyone... Okay, the British guy obviously has read it. Um, but, uh, okay, not many of you have read it. It's a comedy. It's a comedic book. It's about... Um, it's just ridiculous, but it's hilarious. But one of the funniest things about it is the way it deals with terrible things, like, for instance, the end of the world. At the very beginning of the book, you're introduced to the main character, Arthur Dent, 
And Arthur Dent finds out moments after we meet him that the world is going to end. Basically, the galactic government outside of the earth has decided to show up and surround uh, the earth and prepare to demolish it. Why do they have to demolish the earth, you might ask? Because they want to make a uh, an interstellar bypass. They're adding a new road, and they need to move the earth out of the way because it's in the way. So they're going to destroy the whole earth. So basically, all of humanity is going about their day, then all of a sudden, these giant ships show up in the sky and say, hey, we're here to destroy earth. And of course, what do the humans respond? They say, well, why are you going to destroy earth? And they say, well, we're going to make this intergalactic bypass. And they said, but we live here. And the guy, the guy who's in charge of the demolition annoyingly says, guys, the plans have been available for 50 years, only four light years away. You guys could have issued a complaint whenever you wanted. Why didn't you just complain about it and file the proper paperwork? And then proceeds to destroy the earth. Immediately, that's how the book begins. Earth is destroyed. The plans were kept far away. Of course, earth doesn't have space travel, so there was no way they could have even accessed the plans. It just kind of happens to them. Um, it's played for comedic effect, but perhaps this morning, that's kind of how the end of the world sounds. It sounds like God's just going to just destroy things. He's just going to wreck the world and end it for whatever reason he has, and that's just the, that's just the way it is. Here's the difference between this story and uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. God doesn't hide his plans four light years away in Alpha Centauri, right? He gives them to us. He tells us why, what he's going to do. He gives us hints as to why he's going to do it. But he also gives us the opportunity to respond, to respond to this prophecy. So this morning, um, I want us to look at what this, uh, what's going on here. Let's try to figure out what is going on here. God is giving his, his, his people his plan. And what is his plan? His plan is to bring judgment on the earth. The prophets tend to call this day, and Zephaniah particularly calls it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day when God is going to visit his judgment on this earth. You see in verses 2 to 3, it says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. This might sound familiar to you. It's very similar to what God said to Noah when wickedness was taking over the world. Um, he said to Noah, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. The people who are hearing this passage or hearing Zephaniah preach would immediately think, okay, he's referencing Noah. God is going to destroy the earth like he did with Noah. We know that he promised Noah that he wouldn't do it with water, but the day is coming when fire will come to destroy us. God promised us that that day was coming, and that must be what he is talking about. But when you think of things in Noahic terms, you've got to think about why did God destroy the world with Noah? When the world was destroyed with Noah, it was always an attempt to bring healing and restoration. Noah is a picture of cleansing in order that the earth, God's creation, might um, survive. 
That's not to say this judgment isn't brutal. That's not to say that God doesn't take the sin very seriously. He does. It says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. These are hard words to read. I don't know about you, but when I'm reading the Bible, I don't tend to flip to passages like this. This isn't like the, the pleasure reading that I get out of, you know, we, I love reading about Jesus, you know, he's healing the leper, or, you know, um, I love reading like, it's by grace you have been saved. There's so many great verses that are so comforting. But what do we do with a passage like this? A passage that is about doom and gloom, it's about the end of the world, it's about God's wrath, it's about God's judgment. How do we wrap our minds around this? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to talk about three things this morning. I want to talk about the reason for judgment. I want to answer that why question that we have. I want to talk about the reality of judgment. What is God actually talking about? What really is happening or going to happen according to this prophecy? And the third thing I want to talk about, what is our response to it? Got that alliteration, reason, reality, response for those of you who are taking notes. Um, I will warn you, the first point is much longer than the other two, so when I finish the first point and we're two-thirds of the way through the normal amount of time, don't think that all the points are going to be equal. Just, you know, a little warning in advance. All right, what's the reason? What is the reason God's judgment is coming according to Zephaniah? Well, the easy answer, the simple answer, but maybe the incomplete one, is that because of sin. That's what he says here in verse 17. Uh, the beginning of verse 17, I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. But this isn't just any, uh, any sin, um, any random sin. This is actually the sin particularly that Zephaniah is talking about of God's people. You kind of imagine as people are listening to Zephaniah's sermon and he starts off and he talks about how judgment is coming and God is going to sweep away everyone from the face of the earth and uh, there's going to be judgment and there are, you know, the, uh, the, the Israelites or the, the Jews at this time are probably listening saying, yes, finally God's going to come and destroy our enemies. I can't wait for him to say, but God then will spare us because we are God's people. But then Verse 3b happens. He says, When I would destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. So God's people are being judged here. And that's important. We tend to think of, of sin as just arbitrary rules that God has created. You know, you do this, you don't do this. You do this, you don't do this. You know, you have like all the list of do's, all the list of don'ts, and God just created that list so to pr make us prove that we like him. Um, and that is honestly not the reality of how sin is understood in the Bible. Sin is a disease. Sin is, is literally working against the flourishing of God's creation. God created us in a very specific way. He created Adam and Eve from the very beginning to be in a dependent relationship with him. It's God it's Adam and Eve, right? It's God, it's humanity and creation. God called Adam and Eve to be in a special relationship with him. It's a dependent relationship. It's a relationship that needs him, but it's also a relationship of intimate love and community with the God of the universe. That's how God created them. 
But Adam and Eve, they say, hey, no, we don't want any part of that. They rebel against him. They eat the fruit. But really what they're saying, more than just deciding to break an arbitrary rule, they're saying, I want to be like God. I think that I know what is best for me better than God does. And when they do that, they introduce sin into the world. And sin, it's like a sickness. It starts to destroy the world in which we live in. The good news is that God did not turn his back on creation. At that point, he could have been like, all right, well, they screwed up. Let's start over again. Uh, Let's clear this slate and start a new one. No, he says, I have a promise for you. I'm not going to reject you. Even though you deserve it, even though you've rebelled against me and say you want life on your own, I'm not going to leave you. And one day, I'm going to bring restoration. One day, I'm going to bring, uh, make all things right. So what does he do? The story continues. God recruits Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you're going to be my guy. You're going to be the guy who, uh, who starts this process of restoration for me. Through you and through your descendants, I'm going to make a people out of you. And your people are going to be a picture to the world of me. They're going to call people back to me. They're going to begin making this world function in the way it's supposed to. Because you're going to live as people who are dependent on me. Again, and you're going to show the world the love, the joy, and the peace you receive from being my people. And he continues that. He rescues these people from Egypt when they're in slavery, as our people and restoration groups have been talking about all weekend. He brings them out of slavery. And he gives them these laws. He gives them these rules. He says, hey, this is how you can mark yourselves as different. So when the nations look at you, they see something different. They see something beautiful and they say, hey, I want that. The people of God's people, including God's people today, are meant to be a picture to the greater world of what relationship with God is like. We're meant to be a picture of God's beauty, God's love, God's care for justice, and God's care for mercy But here's the problem. Judah was screwing it up. They were not being a picture of God. They were calling themselves God's people. They're saying, hey, we're God's people. Look at us. We're awesome. God loves us. But then everything they were doing was just trying to look like the other nations. When we look at the sins that Zephaniah calls out here, the sins that Judah was creating or was committing at this time, I think we see ourselves a little bit, including myself, not saying just you. I'm saying we all can see ourselves. I want to look at those sins really briefly. The first sin that Judah is committing is the sin of having a divided heart. They're supposed to be in this covenantal, committed relationship with God, but instead they're worshiping God on Sundays or on the Sabbath, on Saturday, and then they're worshiping other gods the rest of the week. That's what it's talking about here in verses 4 to 6. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Moloch. Apparently, 
They're still going to they're still going to the synagogue. They're still going to temple. They're still doing some religious practices to worship the true God. But then they're also going over here to the temple of Baal, and they're going over here to the temple of Molech, and they're just trying to you know worship all the gods, all the gods. And why might they be doing that? Well, here's the thing: God promised them long-term love, joy, and peace in His presence. But God did not promise some of the things they thought they wanted. God didn't promise them that they could have, um, that every single harvest they would have a full harvest. God didn't promise them that they would uh, find a wife. God didn't promise them, everyone, that they would have children, so they would go to these other gods who did promise that. Okay, well, if you come to Baal, Baal promises fertility. Baal promises that if you worship him, if you give sacrifices to him, he will make sure your crops grow. And that's where we can see the connection between there and now. How so? None of us are, I imagine none of us are going to leave here and go down to the, uh, the temple of uh, Moloch down the street um, and pray to a pole. We're not going to do that. But we are going to ask, we are going to leave here and then demand other things to give us what we think we need. That's what worship is. Worship is celebrating what you value. So what you truly value, you go after, right? So if you are truly worshiping the Lord alone, you will live a dependent, God-fearing life, expecting what God can do for you, asking Him for guidance, looking to Him to give you what you need. When you don't get what you think you want, you can actually look to God and say, God, what are you trying to show me? How are you trying to show me that you fulfill me greater than these things do? That is what it means to live a God-honoring life. But what we do instead, if you're anything like me, is you go and you worship the things that promise fame. Or they promise, you know, a reputation. Or they promise control. Control's a big one. Promise you control over something. Or they promise you pleasure. This promised me immediate pleasure that I can get right now. It promised me distraction from my worries and my stresses. It promises me self-actualization. Finally, I can prove to the world I am somebody of worth. We worship other things. Think back on this. As you're going through this week, this is your homework. Look at your, look at your week. What are, what's driving your decisions? What is the ultimate drive of your decisions? And I think you'll find your heart is divided. Even those of us who know and love Jesus deeply, our heart is divided towards longing for other things. And apparently, we're guilty of what Judah is guilty of here. Second thing that this goes in hands with, hands in hand, hand in hand with is complacency. It says in verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. What does it mean, wine left on its dregs? When they make wine, or at least when they made wine back in these days, at the bottom of the, basically the barrel would have like different kind of random solids or contaminants in it. Um, And so what they have to do is they have to like wait a while, let it sit still, and the solid pieces would float to the bottom and would just sit on the bottom. And they would scoop the wine off the top to get the good stuff out. As they got closer to the bottom, if they decided not to continue scooping, what would happen is the solids at the bottom would begin to infect the entire mass of liquid. 
And the mass would actually become kind of gelatinous, kind of thick and gross and uh, bitter tasting and contaminated. It would become this solid gelatinous liquid, whatever you want to call it, at the bottom of the barrel. Stephanie is saying those who are complacent are like the wine at the bottom. They're just there. They serve no, they're, no, they're not moving in any direction this way or this way. They're just stuck in jello. Are we stuck in jello? When we leave here, is God a part of our lives? Maybe we, maybe we leave and we don't even think about God for weeks at a time. Our life isn't controlled by Jesus. We don't really, it's not so much that we hate him or anything. It's just like, we don't really think about him. We don't really think he'll do anything. The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad, as the passage says. It's just, okay, he's there probably, but it doesn't really affect my life anyway. Complacency. Both complacency and this double-hearted nature, this double-minded nature, both are, are a part of the third thing which is blending in, just blending in with the rest of the world. So Zephaniah accuses Judah of here. He says, On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills, Wail you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out, and all you who trade with silver will be destroyed. See three things here. The first thing you might notice is that he's getting on these people for wearing foreign clothes. Now, that's a, that might sound strange. It's not, Zephaniah is not talking about you know, wearing the style of, I don't know, a different country. What he's talking about is one of two things. It could be religious garments. They're dressing in like the religious garments of the other nations to fit within religiously. Or it could just mean an obsession. Just an obsession of being just like everyone else. I, wanna, I don't want to stand out as God's special people. I want to be like everyone else. So you're trying to look and act just like everyone else. And that continues when it talks about how God's going to judge those who don't step on the threshold, which is really strange sounding. Well, the Philistines, for instance, had a, a policy or a, a practice, a religious practice, when they were worshiping their god Dagon, um, that they would not step on the threshold um, when they were worshiping him. It was a religious practice that they had, um, that they had observed. And so it seems that Israel is even adopting the values and the, of the other nations. That's really, I think that's easily applicable today. It's easy for us to just be like, okay, you know, I'm not going to be directed mainly by what God calls me to do, what God teaches me in Scripture. I'm just going to be, I'm going to try to like take on the values and the passions of everything in culture. I don't say everything in culture is a bad value, but that when the primary way you're getting your value system is from external culture and not from God's word, that's an issue. It's, that's, that means you're not really fulfilling your purpose to stand out as God's um, image. The third thing you see is this thing about the merchants being wiped out and those who trade with silver will be destroyed. There's two things happening here. One, 
Clearly, the Israelites are just really focused on the accumulation of wealth. Wealth has become so important to them, which is very normal in the big world, in the greater world around us. Just pursuing wealth, pursuing uh, fortune, pursuing um, success, that is the primary value of our world. And that would not be weird to see someone who's not in the church be like that, not in God's people. But God's people aren't defined by that. Their success is not, deter- is not determinant of them. Wealth is not their primary value. But this is the primary value, apparently, of Judah. And also, alongside of this, it's implied that there's just so much injustice. Like the wealth is being accrued to build their own houses, to build their own vineyards. But there's no thought of giving it to those who need it. It's all about accumulating wealth for yourself. And that way, they're looking just like the other nations. And the whole purpose of God's people, what God is using them for, is to call others to himself. There's supposed to be a picture of who God is. But instead, they look just like everyone else. My question is, among our people outside of this community, outside of your church, do people know that you're a Christian? Do people know? Do people think of this person, wow, there's something different about the way they act, the way they talk about themselves, the way they talk about their purpose and their values, the way they talk about what drives them, the way they talk about Jesus and what they, who they love. It's kind of like, um, have you ever been to a party? I don't know. I guess imagine all of us have been at some gathering, like, you know, back before the pandemic, you know, we don't really do those as much anymore. But the, you know, remember parties, right? Um, you go to a party and you're all talking, everyone's like, you know, joking around or talking, you know, you hear, it's like that chatter noise in the background. But then all of a sudden, one group of people talking just bursts out into laughter, like really loud laughter, clearly something's very, very funny. What happens to the rest of the room? The rest of the room gets quiet. And they all look over at the people who are laughing. And they say, wait, what happened? You know, everyone wants to know what was happening. What was so funny? I want to be a part of that joke. I want to know because that laughter is contagious. You want to be a part of it. And that's what we need to be as the church. We need to be a people who are laughing, who have joy, even despite our circumstances, who know the love of God so deeply on us that it affects the way we interact with other people. So that when people see it, they say, hey, I want that. Not everyone will. But we want to be those people who will, be, will stand out. Not for our own self-righteousness, not for our own judgmentalism, for sure, but because they clearly have, we clearly have something. We have Jesus, and we want to share it with other people. So God is looking at Judah, and he knows one thing that's true about God is God desperately loves his creation and he desperately longs to restore it. He desperately longs to bring it back to the order in which he made it for. And he has given a task to Judah and said, hey, Judah, you get to be my picture to the nations. But instead, they are making God look to the nations like he's nobody, like he's just like any other God, like he doesn't change their lives, like he doesn't uh, mean anything to, to their lives. Like he hasn't really offered any real hope to the world. And God says, I have to do something about this. I care about the world too much to let the hope be blocked 
for the rest of the world. I've got to bring an end to wickedness so that I can be seen and that people can find life. He has to protect his name. So what's the reality of this judgment? That was point one, by the way. Um, it's the reality. What's the reality? What's it mean? What really happens in this judgment? Does it really happen? Does everyone get wiped away from the earth? Well, um, the initial judgment, the cool thing about prophecy in the Old Testament is that it often is predicting multiple things at the same time. It usually has like a, a short-term prophecy, and there's a long-term prophecy, and then maybe even a longer-term prophecy. And sometimes it's hard to tell what's referencing right away and what's referencing later and what's referencing eventually. Um, but we see that here in this passage because the first thing we see is that God does fulfill this in a very tangible way for the kingdom of Judah. 100 years later, after this prophecy is given, the Babylonian Empire comes in, they sack Jerusalem. God's people are then carted into slavery where uh, the Babylonians hold them for 70 years. But God doesn't do this. God does judge them. God does allow them to experience the consequences of their sin. But it's not the end of the story. God's judgment is not the end of the story. God's judgment leads to God's mercy. You see, God rescues his people and restores them back to their land. They build the temple again. They restore sacrifices. They get things back. God redeems them from their slavery once again. So that's the first reality of what happens, of how this is um, fulfilled. The second and probably the most important of all. 586 years later, after they're carried into slavery, something even better happens, right? It's the same verse 7. It says, Be silent before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. What is the sacrifice that it's talking about here? What is it? Well, the dire images of judgment in Zephaniah do communicate something to us. They communicate the fullness of God's wrath and that it's going to be poured out. They tell us that God is going to bring his judgment for the sake of his name, for the sake of this world. We know that the fullness of his hatred towards sin needs to be revealed. We know that the fullness of his justice needs to be poured out. The world needs to know that God isn't double-hearted. The world needs to know that God isn't complacent. The world needs to know that God um, isn't just like the rest of the worthless gods of this world. But the way that this is fulfilled is on his consecrated sacrifice, his son, Jesus. The fullness of of God's wrath is not poured out on those who deserve it. It is not, the fullness of God's wrath is not poured out on Judah. The fullness of God's wrath is not poured out on us. But the fullness of God's wrath is poured out on himself, on Jesus, his son. God made flesh. God, Jesus takes on the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus becomes a picture of, that Israel was never, meant, was never able to be. Israel was never able to truly show what it looks like 
what the God of the universe looks like. They were never clearly been able to show like, what it's like to be in relationship with God. They were never clearly able to show the justice and the mercy of God to their neighbor. They were not able to do it, but on that cross that day on Calvary, Jesus did. Because in that moment, the wrath of God gets poured on, on him, which shows us that God takes sin incredibly seriously. He hates it. He sees it as so destructive. He knows it's going to harm us. He knows it has to be punished in full. And so he allows that punishment to come down on the person of Jesus Christ. But also in that exact same moment, we get to see the depth of love that God has for us, the depth of God's mercy, because instead of allowing it to come down on us, he takes it on himself. He chooses to go forward with it. The cross shows us both the deepness, the depth of God's hatred towards sin, the seriousness of our sin, so serious that someone has to die, but it also shows us the extravagant mercy of God that he was willing to die for us. There's a pastor named Jack Miller who used to say, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Truth is, there's actually a third fulfillment to this passage that has not happened yet. The New Testament tells us that there is a day coming when God's judgment will be poured out again on all those who are not in Christ. Anyone who's in Christ is safe. Anyone who is not in Christ, his judgment will be poured out. So our question then is in the meantime, as we look forward to that day when Jesus comes back and... Um, and brings judgment with him, also restoration, but judgment first. As we look forward to that day, the question becomes, how do we respond? What is our response when we see our divided hearts, when we see our, you know, our patterns of complacency, when we see our desire just to blend in and not stand out and be what God has called us to be? What do we do with that? <clears throat> what we do what Zephaniah calls the people to do here. He says at the beginning of chapter 2, Gather together and gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect, and that day passes like windblown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day the Lord's anger. What's the first response? The first response is Zephaniah is calling everyone to, hey, listen to what I'm saying. Take seriously your sin. Your sin is so serious. It is destructive to you. It is destructive to those around you. And it is an affront to a God who loves you. It is very serious. That's why I didn't jump to the cross immediately at the beginning of the sermon. I didn't want to cover over, oh, let's just, you know, let's just pretend this isn't that bad because, you know, Jesus, which, yes, Jesus covers over us completely. But we need to sit for a second in the seriousness of our sin. We need to sit for a second in the fact that, yes, my heart is really distorted. I really want bad things for myself. I really want the wrong thing. And when we see that, we should long and strive to live as people with single hearts towards God, who live actively seeking the Lord, not complacently, who seek to be a picture of Jesus to our neighbors. But also when we fail, 
when we fail to do these things, it shouldn't just drive us to be like, okay, well, God doesn't really care. It should drive us to repentance. This is what God, this is what Zephaniah calls us to, what God calls us to through Zephaniah. He says, seek the Lord with humility. He's talking about coming before the Lord and saying, yes, I am really messed up, Lord. I need you. I need you. Ask for forgiveness. Turn from our sin. Look to Jesus. It says here, you seek the Lord, all you who are humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Ooh, that sounds a little bit like duty. I've got to now obey God to get his favor. Jesus clarifies this for us. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Ultimately, if we're going to be, as a community of God's people, a picture of God, we cannot be a picture of ourselves. We have to be a picture of Jesus. And to be a picture of Jesus, we have to have our faith in him. We cannot be self-righteous. We cannot be judgmental. We cannot be um, uh, complacent. But what we can be is we can be people who are dependent on Jesus, who love him, who know deeply what he has done, who look to him, who continue to go back to him over and over again when we fail, repenting faith, repenting faith. Jesus is lovely. Jesus is our righteousness. He gives it to us. And here's the good news. As often as we see our sin and come to him in repentance, the infinite amount of times we do this is the infinite amount of times that he will forgive us graciously never stops. It's good news. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much um, for this word. Even though it is hard to hear, it is hard to look at our sin honestly, take it seriously like you do. But Lord, thank you, Lord, that you don't just leave us in our sin. You also give us your son. Um, and we thank you, Lord, for his work on our behalf. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.